Previously on the Mojo Radio Show, Lola sharpened her nails. Hey Lola, can you put on some ACDCs? Do it yourself, fat boy. Really? Robbo and Gary went head to head. Well, you did last week's pop quiz hotshot. Yeah, this one, I've, I've, I've got a really, this one's a really, this is a beauty, this is a good one. And AP opened another bottle. Oh, don't mind if I do. Tonight, it's my mystery box. Can the team survive my massive box? Oh, this box is pretty big. That, that's a big box. But the big question is, will AP actually make it home? Anyone got the local Uber number? All that and more today on the Mojo Radio Show. How's that, guys? As usual, that's awesome, buddy. Do you want to come in and have a quick chat before you bugger off? Sure. Hang on a sec. Oh, guys, this is a comfy chair. Thanks, guys. <laughs> how, come, how come I haven't got one of these in the booth? Uh, AP's, I think AP spilled his wine on it a couple of weeks ago. It's off at the dry cleaners. <laughs> oh. Once we put the banana lounge in for AP, there wasn't really room for another chair, mate. So, um, you know. I, uh, you know what? So I think the big mistake was giving him those little cocktail umbrellas. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and a bar there. fridge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God. The places I'm finding those umbrellas, scary. <laughs> so, mate, do you need Lola to make you a coffee or you're right? I'll have a, um, I'll have a short black, thanks. A short a, black. That's yeah, appropriate. Not a short black. Yeah. I don't make coffee. Lofty, can we um, can we start on just with the book? What I'm curious to know is that since since you've published the book, which is a great a great story, and Thank you've you. been doing the rounds now of your old stomping grounds of radio stations and the media. What what have you learnt about yourself since you put the book? Into action, like what in in doing all these interviews? Is there something that you've learned about yourself? Um, I would say, if anything, that uh, the thing I've learned most is my battles are not unique. Um, I think when, particularly when dealing with um, anxiety and depression, as um, as I now know many people do, because I'm getting messages from people all over the country uh, and from people I don't even know. Uh, just saying, hey, look, thanks for putting yourself out there. I've been battling with this all my life. Uh, and bullying as well is a is another major thing. Of course, um, I suppose what made it unique to begin with and perhaps appealed to HarperCollins was here I was working in the media and I was born with dwarfism. And a lot of people don't realise that because we're basically faceless as we are right here and now. Most people don't know what we three look like because they hear our voices but they don't have a physical description of it. So it was a surprise to many people for me to put it out there. And because dwarfism is is such an uh, infrequent occurrence in genetic abnormalities, we're looking at, say, one in, in 25 to 50,000 births, which in anyone's language is not a lot. Uh, and so that is something that people don't necessarily relate to as a whole, but they relate to the fact that there is a difference about them that then put them in the firing line to be bullied, to cause all sorts of anxiety and depression. And, um, as I suppose to answer your question, the thing that it's learning is, is my story is helping people. 
And that to me is just, it's just phenomenal. I I got yet another email last night from somebody who'd uh, watched online um, the interview on 7.30 that uh, Mon Shafter, Shafter, I should say, um, did a beautiful job of. And again, this person related saying, look, I'm buying your book tomorrow. I got bullied at school. I had a horrible childhood. I had this, that, and everything else. And and I suppose what it's doing, if anything, Gaz, is giving people a space to talk. It, it's interesting. And that battle started young, obviously, at birth for you, Lofty. One thing that I'm curious about, and I want to try and tie a few things together here. Sure. If I take you back to a time in when you're growing up with your dad and you'd go and clean offices, then yes. your dad would go to the pub and he'd drink heavy, long and hard. And this was a time before iPads or phones where you could plonk somebody in the corner and say, amuse yourself. You just basically sat there and you'd walk Mm. up to your dad and say, can we go now? And he'd say, not yet, introduce you to strangers. And he would just keep drinking. In which case, I can imagine for hours on end, you were terribly bored. And it's interesting that the profession you stepped into was radio, where you kind of liked the fact that you were in a radio booth in control of what you were doing, but you were alone. But then the other side of it, you said, I found it really hard just to not want to do something. And you go and make a cup of coffee, whatever, in the coffee room of the radio station. Mm-hmm. Today, can you, how do you feel when you just sit? Can you be bored or does it take you back to a time where you have such strong emotional feelings to sitting there alone? How do you feel in your own space today? In my own space, um, and I think I may have touched on this, but I might not have made it clear toward the end of the book, um, following the breakdown, which was 2013, um, and the breakdown I'm talking about is when, uh, for those who have not read the story as yet, I I fell into a deep pit of um, clinical depression and general anxiety disorder. Prior to that, um, I could not be by myself. I, I, I was like that kid with ants in his pants. I couldn't sit still. Mum used to call me triple turbo apparently because that was it. I just could not sit still. And I couldn't be with my own company because I had just had too much of it sitting there mm. doing nothing. I mean, uh, whilst I sat there the majority of the time, the other, the only upside to it is I learned how to play eight ball to keep myself amused. Um, but, you know, I, I wasn't playing that all the time. But pubs of old had the eight ball tables and some still do as we know. But, I just found being by myself really hard to be right up until the point I had my breakdown in 2013. And then after that, and when I came out through that, I was really comfortable in my own skin. And so a year later, here I had to be ostensibly by myself for a long period of time when I had a a major spinal operation, which I was in hospital for some six to eight weeks for. Uh, And a lot of that, as you know, particularly in a private situation, you are by yourself with just your own company. And I found that okay to be in my own skin then. That was mm. the first time in my life. And that was what? So what are we talking? Six, I was 49 years old. So it took me 49 years to be comfortable in my own skin. Were there signs of the anxiety for you all along the journey, Lofty? Because the book from, from cover to cover is just one battle challenge, hard time after. It's a, it's a really great read. Was it... Was it conscious for you? Was the anxiety everywhere? Were there signs all along the way for you or did it only really manifest late in your 40s where you kind of went, okay, now I know what this thing is? 
it really only manifested late in my 40s, uh, thanks to the breakdown. And um, I did not know what it was I was dealing with. And of course, anxiety is something in your mind that you don't necessarily say, hey, this is what I'm going through right now today. Uh, And because that is your experience of the world, you tend to believe from your own yardstick that that must be other people's measure of the world, that other people must feel like this. Other people must be so anxious about not getting it right, getting it wrong, pleasing people, uh, doing the right thing, um, not upsetting anybody, all of that kind of stuff. And it is only with that benefit of hindsight, the 2020 vision of hindsight, that I'm now able to look back on my life and go, wow, anxiety has run my entire life. And it's it's something that the uh, psychiatrist said to me when um, when I had my first meeting with her post uh, right in the middle of the start of the break or middle at the start of the breakdown when when I had that episode of um, an anxiety attack in a studio, um, she ran through a standardized test and I kept saying to her, none of this would have happened if I hadn't done such and such, thinking that there was a particular event that had triggered this major episode in my life, this major crisis. And she said, no, she said, from what you have just told me and the test you have just done, you have been a powder keg of anxiety all your life. All you were waiting for was the spark to set it off. And if it hadn't have been this particular instance, it would have been something else. In the book, Lofty, you talk about there was a time with your sister, even early on, where I think your sister got pocket money and you wouldn't. And you said at that, even right back, you remember at that time you doubted your own self-worth. And that's that's a really profound thought that someone would value their self-worth as a kid. How, how did you gain back that self-worth? How, how do you feel about that today? Uh, I look back on that and just know that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was one hell of an evil woman. Uh, There's many things that I could say about her, none of them nice. Um, And I kind of hope that there's some kind of special place that she's roasting in, to be perfectly honest. Uh, The instances that that you refer to, uh, and she didn't just do this with me, but as a kid, I did not know that at the time. She had uh, four daughters, all who had children, and she had a favourite in each of her daughter's families. And in my case, it was my uh, older sister, Jill. So Nana would come and visit and she would open her purse and give my sister five, ten, twenty dollars And this was the late 60s, early 70s. So we are talking a lot of moolah. This is, you know, that's a lot of money to a kid. Um, talking 40 plus years ago now. And so five, 10, 20 bucks back then was a lot of money. Here you go, Jill, here's some pocket money. And she would turn to me and give me 10 or 20 cents and go, you don't need money like your sister does. So what are you supposed to take away from that? That my value is a lot less than hers. I don't need money. I don't need to have uh, any form of currency because obviously, you know, I'm just simply not worth it. So um, that that put a huge damper on my on my psyche and for a lot of a lot of my life i looked at myself as being some kind of second class citizen um and not worthy of so many things and that is primarily thanks to my grandmother and also to to a certain extent my dad because as you say about sitting in the in the corner of the pub his needs to sit there and you know get rolling drunk 
were much greater than my needs to go home, do my homework, have dinner and all of that kind of stuff, which is where I then added to the anxiety of all my needs come after everybody else's. Everyone else's needs must be served before mine. There is no doubt from being born with dwarfism, having these family challenges, the ridicule at school from kids. I mean, that whole way, and I guess the psychologists call it the imposter syndrome, and this has been something that's been very, like you've had to face that basically from day one in your life. And then what's really interesting about it, Lofty, is you face those things as a kid, but then those things manifested themselves later on in your working career where you became very successful in radio. You worked your way through all the country radio stations. And one of the things that really got me was, you ended up at CFM on the Gold Coast and you said it was the dream gig. I'm in a studio overlooking the Broadwater, looking at Marina Mirage. This was every person's dream. Yet in your mind, you would say to yourself, you're not really good enough to working at CFM. And that, 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 when you look back on that today, what, what do you feel or what do you reflect upon? Um, the, throughout my life, and that's a that's a great example of it. Like CFM on the Gold Coast, the original CFM, which um, launched in 1989, and it was the highlight of my radio career to be a part of a, a radio station from the ground up. With all those of us who have worked in radio as announcers, have been at radio stations that may have changed their format, changed their name, but very few of us have had the opportunity to be at a radio station from day one and see it. Uh, at its birth, go through its infancy, and then onto its success. And somehow, yeah, Gary, I, I look back on that now going, thanks to my anxiety, I really couldn't enjoy the moment because I, I was waiting for somebody to come up and tap me on my shoulder and go, you really don't belong here. You're just filling the gap till I get somebody better. And I believed that right up until uh, Roger Green, who was the music director who I worked with at um, Stereo 10 in Brisbane. Uh, he was the music director at uh, CFM at the time, and they were doing internal tracking. And I'd go to him and go, Roger, I'm just not cutting the mustard. You know, I'm, I'm going to be the weak link in the chain. And he'd say to me, Loft, stop worrying. You're doing just fine. And then when the survey results proved exactly that I wasn't the weak link in the chain, I was, if anything, the opposite. Um even though that sounds egotistical to say, there there are the figures there to back that up. Um, I still somehow thought, oh, okay, well, I must be writing highly in the morning because that's a lag of breakfast and then, you know, people are switching <laughs> off, guy to come on sort of thing. Like all of that kind of stuff. It, it's, any, it's anything but the success that it deserves to be. And, and that's – and to anybody dealing with mental illness who may be listening to this this podcast, they would be familiar with it. Life's enjoyment is is dampened by this constant narrative that runs in your mind telling you everything but to enjoy this moment. Yeah, this moment's good, but wait till the next one comes along. And I want there's two things I want to camp on here, Lofty. And one of them is you are now heard around the world on and I go to this. 180 different different TV networks, 180 countries hear your voice as, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's what, is, is MasterChef Australia the most watched uh, cooking show in the world? Is that right? As, uh, as of this time, as we speak, as of the time that I wrote the book, yeah, that is 
that is correct. It, um, it is the most watched cooking program in the world. People, not MasterChef, the franchise as a whole, but MasterChef Australia, that particular show goes to, as you quite rightly said, Gaz, more than 180 countries around the world, and it is the most watched cooking program on the planet. You're the guy that starts the show, does the links. It's such a recognisable piece because it's such a high-profile show. So mm-hmm. for a voice talent, that would be that'd be like the Super Bowl. That would be the Masters. That would be Test Cricket at the MCG. How do you handle the voice today? Do you still get attacked by the imposter syndrome? Why is it different now than it was for you at CFM? And if it is, how do you deal with that? Um, I deal with it, thankfully, to – I deal with it now – I'm trying to articulate this as best as I possibly can, but um, I now look at my life as Lofty 2.0. Uh, because Lofty 1.0 was that anxious being from birth, uh, a grandmother who valued his granddaughter much more than uh, one of her grandsons, a grandmother who said to my mother, you should keep him away, locked away from the world. It'll be better for everyone concerned, in particular him. What she meant by that was she would not be embarrassed by having a less than perfect grandson out there in society. She tried again when it was time for me to go to school. Mum refused, which is, you know, I'm eternally grateful to my mother for. So that just led to a whole raft of uh, mental health issues for me. When the breakdown happened, I was able to get the right help, good help. And it doesn't always happen uh, because there can be a trial and error um, type thing, particularly with the medications that are involved to to try and quell those demons in one's mind. Then you don't always hit on them right from the outset. But I was very lucky. I did hit on the right ones. And so to explain, it's not like I had anxiety. It's fixed. Um, it's gone away now. It is an ongoing process of managing my mental health on a daily basis, including with medications, of course, and um, very good counselling with a with a brilliant psychologist by the name of Peter Casbolt. Um, and he and I work through a lot of good stuff. I check in with him on a semi-regular basis, not so much now as, as what I was when I was in the depths of it. But um, yeah, I, I check in with him and discuss issues on a on a semi-regular basis. It's It's just like... Any other part of your health that you've got to manage, you can't just go to the gym and go, well, I've been to the gym once, so I'm fit now, um, you know, and you just can't go, well, I had my breakdown, I'm out, I'm out of it and all is well with the world. I've got to manage it every day. You and I first met in 92, which was just after your stint at CFM. I was mm-hmm. working at Triple M in Brisbane and you were coming in as the, as the voiceover guy. I would never have picked what you were going through. Was that a conscious decision that you just got up every day and you said to yourself, I've just got to deal with this? Or was it just sort of, did you just shove it away in the back of your mind and think if I forget about it, it'll go away? Um, both, Robbo, to be to be perfectly honest. Um, I hoped it wouldn't manifest in the job itself. Although, again, I, I didn't know anxiety by its name back then. I just knew that there was this, this narrative that was driving my life. And and, um, well, to have you say that, it means a great deal to me because I would have thought it was obvious to anybody who was watching that, you know, I just didn't think I was worthy of, of 
being in a session. Because back then, when you and I were working together for the very first time, I would have been thinking they've only got me because so-and-so wasn't available. I've got to tell you a funny story while we're here, and I hope you remember this. I remember the first time we actually met uh, I, I just started at Triple M in Brisbane and the copy guys had come into the recording studio and said, we've got this voiceover guy today coming in. His name's Lofty Fulton and they gave me your demo tape, which I played and obviously heard your voice and had this mental image in my head of who would be turning up. Uh, and to describe the scene, my back was to the studio door. If you remember the tiny little production suite I'm talking about in commercial production in, the Triple M in Brisbane. Yeah, my back was to the door. In, Queen, in the old Queen Street building. At, in the yeah. old Queen Street building. Remember that tiny little recording studio that I worked yeah. in? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The so, yeah. So, so yeah. for those people who haven't had the pleasure, my back was to the door and the door opened inwards towards me and it was half glass at the top and then wooden at the bottom. And I, all I remember is sitting there working at the console with my back to the door, hearing the door open and hearing your voice saying, you must be Robbo. And I turned around and because you were lower, smaller, shorter than the wood on the door, I couldn't see anybody. <laughs> yeah. And I uh, thought someone was taking the piss. I, I thought, come on, what's going on here? I recognised your voice from the demo tape. And then you walked around the corner and I was, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is the, the, probably the response you get from everybody when they first meet you was, wow, how does that voice come out of that body? But Oh, uh, look. You know, I'd, I'd love to say that I remember that day as clear as a bell, Robbo, but honestly, that that scenario has happened so often. I'm sure. My, <laughs> but, I do, but I do remember I had to come around the back of the desk mm-hmm. to introduce myself to you because I couldn't see up over the panel. Oh, dear. Be easier to walk around the back and, you know, introduce myself there. Um and I've had that instance happen a number of times. There was um, there was one in particular, Gary, that you would have read about in the book with um, when I started working for what is now known as Fox Sports here in mm. Australia. Um, it started out as the premier sports network and uh, uh, pay TV was only just getting off the ground here in um, here in Australia and there were a lot of stations that needed voices and um, uh, the Premier Sports Network at the time had booked out a uh, studio here in Sydney. It used to be the old Channel 10 studios in North Ride. The building itself no longer exists but it became Global Studios uh, and they were auditioning so many people that they had basically started in the morning and kept going through to the early hours of the night. And I'd never been there before. And um, I walked into the reception and the receptionist looks up at me and like, um, can I help you? Are you lost? Or, you know, like, who are you? And I just said, oh, hi, my name's Lofty. I'm here to do an audition for you uh, for Premier Sportsnet. Oh, um, okay. Uh, and you know, TV stations being the rabbit warrants that they are, it was like, okay, go up these stairs along this corridor. At the end of the corridor, you'll get to another set of stairs, go down those stairs. And then as you get to the bottom, you'll see a door in front of you and you'll see another receptionist sitting there at the production suite. So I've wandered in and gone, you know, thank you. Uh, followed the directions, got to the, um, got to the production suite on the other side of the building, walked in. And again, the receptionist has looked up and gone, um, can I help you? And I said, oh, yeah, hi, I'm Lofty. I'm, I'm here to do a voiceover audition for you. And she went, oh, okay, um, please take a seat. And she pointed to the couch a couple of metres 
away to her right. So I went and sat down, picked up a mag and started nervously flicking through its sweating buckets, thinking, God, I hope I don't stuff up this audition. And out of the uh, production suite itself came about, I would say at the time, it would have been at least half a dozen guys. And they're all they're all looking at their watches going, oh, God, this oh, great, just what we need, somebody to hold up the audition process. This next guy's late. And so out of the corner of my eye, I'm watching the receptionist trying to point across herself going, that's lofty. And Hugh leant into her and went, what? That's lofty. Are you sure? Yes. And Hugh did his, um, did his best to not look too shocked, walked over, outstretched hand and said, lofty. And I said, oh, Hugh, nice to meet you. He said, come on in. You know, we auditioned. So the next day he rang my agent who was uh, John at the time, and um, first thing he said to him was, um, why didn't you tell us about Lofty? And John went, what about him? Was he difficult to work with? Did he not turn up? Did he do a bad job? What, what's the problem? No, 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 none of that. What he looked like. Because <laughs> that matters. <laughs> well, because you're not hiring him for what he looks like. He, mm. You're hiring him for what he sounds like and what he can do in, on the audio side of things. And he said, yeah, 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 I know, I know, but it would have been good to have sort of like been forewarned because this was the days before the internet was such a, um, what it is now, where you could just Google somebody's name and go, okay, that's who I'm expecting. Same as what happened in 92, Robbo, with you and I. And um, as you know, back then, um, demos were sent out either on cassette, then they migrated to CD, but there were never pictures of people with them. They were just the audio files. So as you did, you conjure up a, a thought in your mind as to um, – who or what this person looks like, and the image doesn't necessarily match up. And so um, <laughs> John went on to inquire. He said, so how did the audition go? He said, oh, look, great. We want to hire him, but God, we wish you told us what he looked like. So that that became a that became a, a great laugh between Hugh and myself and often got bigger over beers as, uh, as the night went on. You know, the yarn <laughs> got stretched even further. <laughs> Lofty, uh, if I can yeah. take you back a moment, there's something you Don't said worry. which I think is really quite – really powerful and very profound for us because there are people who have struggles in in whatever part of their life. Mm-hmm. And you now have found great success. You have found love. You've got all these great things. And you called it Lofty 2.0. Tell me about the moment where you were able to let go of Lofty and create this new alter ego of Lofty 2.0, which is so powerful that you can talk about it, reflect back and not get caught up in that. Was there a moment? Was there a thing you did? How do you use it? Because that is a tool for people to go, you know what, enough's enough. Here is Robbo 2.0. Here is whatever. That, mm-hmm. That's really good. Is there something you can share with us to help us find that 2.0? I wish there was a uh, a quick fix to it, Gary, but I, I went through a lot of pain and anguish during my breakdown. Um, and for anyone who has suffered with mental illness, it is a journey that you go through by yourself. It's not somebody, you, it's not something that you can take somebody along for the ride with. And anxiety is a, is a beast that was just, um, whilst all, always present in my life, it had never ramped up to the extent that it did when I had my breakdown. And, um, to try and share for those who don't understand anxiety or depression for that matter, because often the two go hand in hand. I, I describe them like the the two forces of a, of a magnet, the opposite poles of a magnet pushing against each other while trying to connect. And of course, as we know, we, we, can't, we can't put the two poles of a magnet together because they'll 
repel one another. Depression is often regret of the past, whereas anxiety is fear of the future. And to describe anxiety, and this is um, this is something that uh, Peter explained to Helen and myself, and he, he, he summed it up so, so incredibly well, was that um, to try and describe some anxiety to somebody is this. He said, Helen, I could bring a lion into this office right here and now. All three of us would freak out. The fight or flight instinct would kick in and you go, oh, my God, got to get away from this lion before this lion eats me. And he said, I could then take the lion back out of the office. Chances are, Helen, you and I would calm down and go, danger's past, all is well with the world, we'd settle down. Lofty, you would probably be sitting there going, what did he do with the lion? Where's the lion? Is the lion waiting outside? Is it just around the corner? Did he put it in my car? Where the hell is that lion? And that's anxiety to a T. It is just this constant... Uh, script that keeps running. So when I was very unwell for that three months, there was a point that uh, the medications and the therapy all sort of came together as one and kicked in and allowed me to let go of the fear. And fear is also an acronym, as as Peter describes it, um, and it's one that many people know are familiar with, uh, false evidence appearing real. And there was a particular point in time where uh, after some time of therapy with Peter, um, an agency in the US reached out to me and they said, you know, we'd like to represent you. And I went, look, that's awesome. That's great. And then the imposter syndrome kicked in and I thought, oh my God, here I go again. I'm sliding. I'm sliding back into this abyss of mental anguish, imposter syndrome, lack of sleep, mental torment. My God. So I... I rang Peter and said, look, this is what's happening. And he said, okay, so what's the fear? I've misrepresented myself and they're going to find out I'm no good at this. Did you represent yourself to them? Did you say, please take me on or did they come looking for you? Um, they came looking for me. Okay, so you've done nothing wrong. What's the evidence that you've misrepresented yourself? Um, none, they came looking for me. So he said, write this down and, and this may help other people as well. When you're in the middle of something that is just going around in your mind that you are so fearful of, you write down what the fear is. That's the F in the, in the word fear. You then write down the evidence to support that fear and you find that there is none. So that is false evidence appearing, the A in fear, real. So when you find yourselves in those situations where anxiety is just tying you in knots, write it down because you can't deal with it in your own head. You can't just um, go, yeah, that's wrong. You can't, Well, in my experience anyway, you've got to write it down, get it on paper. When you look at it and see it in the cold light of day, that it is just a fear that has no foundation, then, only then can you deal with it and let it go. And it's through doing work like that, a lot of cognitive uh, behavioural therapy and, and so on that, um, that has got me to that point where I went, Wow, I can't remember the exact time, um, Gary. I really can't re remember that exact moment, but I do remember feeling what it was like. It was like it was like the tide turning, and the tide just turned, started to come back in again, which was awesome. You've always you must be quite auditory, Lofty, because you've got this incredible voice. You talk often about your music. You talk often about conversations. So there must be a very strong auditory sense within Lofty Fulton. And what I'm interested in is 
not only did you go through all the dwarfism challenges with family and school and then in the workforce, then we get to sort of three quarters of the way through the book before the breakdown and you fall into a gambling addiction. And mm-hmm. that got pretty, pretty dark where you were just spending not just money but time in front of these machines. And what I'm curious of is what was the soundtrack that was going through your head? Did you consciously know it wasn't the right thing to do or was this completely unconscious where you had no control? And if it was conscious, what what were you saying to yourself that would keep you in the chair and not have you walk away? The um, That is uh, a really good question and I'll, I'll try and address it as best I possibly can. Um, what started out initially was just a few dollars here, a few dollars there, a form of escapism because at the time that I started going to the clubs, my marriage was uh, in the toilet and I was going through a very ugly divorce and I was also staying at my mother's place at the time. So I needed space. I needed to get away. I couldn't just sit there in my mother's lounge room and making small talk when all of this crap was going on with my marriage. I, I needed to escape. So for me, I'll go have a beer at the club. It started out as a few dollars. And then as these things do, they offer the promise of riches, you know, come and play multi-lines, multi-bets, whatever, and you could become rich. It's it's like the hook, bait on the hook that gets people to start playing, in my experience anyway. So what happens, it becomes both a conscious and an unconscious thing, Gary, in, in reality is that, okay, let's, let's just use, let's just use terms that everyone can, can relate to easily. You put in 50 bucks, that 50 bucks is gone in the blink of an eye and you go, well, geez, okay, I've got to get that 50 bucks back. So you put another 50 bucks in. Now I'm down a hundred. I've got to get that hundred back. Another 50 goes in, so on and so on and so on and so on. And then I, I heard it said once, the, the worst thing that a gambler can have is a win. And in many instances, that's correct because you can have a win and go, yeah, but that win wasn't big enough to refill the pot. I've got to keep. And you just keep chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing. And it gets almost to a point of no return. I can't walk out now. I'm too far down. I'm too far in the toilet. This thing has got to turn around. And so you just keep feeding it in vain. And I remember hearing stories like this before I became addicted to gambling, thinking, how can anyone get to that point? And it is, it is a really slippery slope that, it's, that once you're on it, it does. It becomes, it becomes ridiculously and horribly addictive. And as I say, I'd heard the stories of how people had lost their house, they'd lost their, you know, they'd lost their marriage, they'd lost basically everything in front of a poker machine and you go, how can you get to that? I know how you can get to that, but it's not until you decide and choose to go, I've got to turn this around. I can't keep flushing my life away like this. But it was a part of the part of the mentality at the time, Gary, was um, I've been through a toxic marriage. I've not had a healthy relationship in my entire life. Nobody loves me. I'm a second-class citizen. Um, and pardon the pardon the French, but fuck it. What does it matter if I blow all this? Lofty, if you had to summarise it, and it's something I woke up this morning as a question for you, which I'm fascinated by, is what was the machine giving you that life wasn't? Um, no judgment. There's my little Jack Russell Terrier going off in the background. Uh, <laughs> somebody's walking past the place. Um, so uh, complete with a dog soundtrack. 
Somebody uh, loves you. <laughs> yeah, somebody loves me. Uh, There's actually a chapter a, about dogs and cats. <laughs> yeah, a, a machine loved me or a machine had no judgment. A machine didn't care as long as I fed it. And it was a way of whittling away hours and trying to get out of, um, you know, trying to get out of my own head at the time, I suppose, which wasn't easy. And you can equate that. It's not just poker machines, but you look at the addiction of screen time. We have a whole generation growing up with in, in front of screens, whether they be iPads, iPhones, uh, Android phones, tablets, whatever the case may be, addicted to screen activity. Um, and it is that it's that thing of I don't know. You almost shut out the world. It's just you and the machine. The kids you grew up with were brutal. Your own family were brutal. You had situations in radio stations you talk about in Brisbane, the conversations, mm-hmm. how they treated you was brutal. And so when we hear these things, then you said that you then went and sought help. And one of the guys that you went to see was a doctor called Dr. Knob Jockey. <laughs> tell Dr. me, Knob Jock- tell yeah. me about just share the story because it's really profound. And I think what it, it, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard for me, Lofty, because I know this is not just an occurrence for you. I know that so many people are going to knock on Dr. Knob Jockey's door. It was the time when um, my marriage, I think it was early 2000s, the divorce had happened because we wound that up, thankfully, before the change of the millennium. Not that that's overly significant, but I, I was happy to leave all of that in the 90s. And this would have been about 2001 where it became evident that I had to have a spinal operation to um, to counteract all the pain and suffering I was having with my back. Um, and so I, I just wasn't in a great place. I was going through all of this alone. I uh, didn't have a partner in my life, uh, and I really had the shits with the world. Like I've had a, an ugly marriage, an ugly divorce. Here I am now being operated on just so I can walk. Um, I'm dealing with shit that other people don't even have to think about. And before I go too far down that track, I know there are many people listening to this who have to deal with a lot more. So I'm not mitigating other people's circumstances by any means. But when it's you yourself going through it and you've got all the evidence that's stacking up against you, it looks like a pretty big scoreboard. And I just I just found it quite overwhelming. So I went to my GP and said, look, I really need something just to help me take the edge off because it's, it's just getting too hard to deal with. And he said, yeah, sure. He said, fine, I can appreciate that given everything you've been going through. And he said, but I think it would also be a good idea if you went and saw our um, in-practice psychiatrist. And I walked into the room and this you could just feel this guy's arrogance. It was, a ma- it was, it was just incredible that I even got into the room because once he and his ego were firmly planted in there, there wasn't a lot of room for anything else. And without any regard or eye contact, he just he said, no, you know, take a seat. No, yes, date of birth, blah. So what brings you here? And he wasn't even really listening. And he said, look, I think at best if I put you in this particular hospital and he said, uh, you won't see anyone else like yourself, of course, but you'll benefit from the group uh, therapy sessions. I said, what do you mean I won't see anyone else? Well, you won't see anyone else like you, but, you know, the group therapy will, will do you the world of good. Now, let's get a bit of family history on you. And all Automatically, the the hackles on the back of my neck as it just started to rot. I had gone in there with a chip on my shoulder and the weight of the world, and this guy wasn't helping. 
And he said, let's have a look at family history. And he said, um, okay, well, um, where's there a history of dwarfism in your family? There isn't one. Oh, come on, there has to be. Now, as I explained before, I'm not a geneticist, I'm not a clinically trained doctor, but dwarfism is a one in 25,000 occurrence. It's an anomaly that can happen anywhere to anyone at any time. And he said, well, there has to be a history of it. Yes, once you get a genetic starter of it, there can be a, that is the start of the historical chain. So you think about it, it's got to start somewhere on this particular occasion in our family, it starts with me. And so I said to him, look, there isn't. He said, oh my God, there has to be. And I said, think about it. By now, I was starting to get really pissed. And I said, think about it. It has to start somewhere and it starts with me. And not to be, uh, not to be defeated, he said, well, is there any chance your parents aren't your real parents? Oh, God. So with that, I just got up, grabbed my bag, pointed my finger at him, wanting to punch him out like you wouldn't believe, and just said, I'm out of here. Walked out, slammed the door behind me, and the petition wall shook like nothing else. And I went back to see the GP, and to his credit, once I told him of the experience, he apologized on behalf of the practice. I said, look, you've got to be really careful. Go see this guy because he is a complete nutter knob. And unfortunately, at the time, I, um, I had a friend who was uh, studying psychology. And uh, unfortunately, there is that saying that, you know, uh, a little knowledge is dangerous, and I shared her experience. <laughs> And um, and she thought in her clinical, oh, yes, well, he, he was quite right to recommend. I said, no. I said, I wouldn't mind betting that he has a vested interest in that particular hospital, which is why he wanted me to go there. And as it turned out, he was uh, a director or on the board of, of this particular uh, facility. And she later came back after I shared the experience and because I, I wasn't real happy with her conclusion that perhaps he was right. But she later came back afterwards and apologized to me and said, my God, he's just shown his true colors at work. You were right. And I apologize for having doubted you. He is a complete nut and knob jockey. Just because they've got doctor in front of their name yeah. doesn't yeah. necessarily mean they're any good. And knob jockey would describe a few other audio engineers that come across in my life too, Lofty. Oh, uh, yeah. Audio engineers, station managers, program directors. There's two <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, that's, that's right. a separate show. Yeah. yeah. We may get picked it's, up it's, one day, so we should stop it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, but it, it's amazing. I suppose um, you just got to keep going, guys. You you guys have been through it. You know what it's like. You just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other because if you don't, what's the alternative? What I'm really curious about, Lofty, is you did that, which, and at the the very end of the book, you talk about the fact that you now are the voice of MasterChef globally. We've talked about the success of that, but mm-hmm. it's kind of a full circle because. Elsewhere in the book, you talk about the fact that you had a dream of being a chef and the point you even bought Helen, your, 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 the love of your life, you bought her a beautiful set of Japanese knives because cooking, being a chef, the kitchen was something you always aspired to. Do you find it kind of ironic that even though because you were dwarfism, you weren't going to be able to work in a big kitchen, that you now are the voice of the most successful cooking show in the world. Is that irony for you? It is actually. It's it's quite ironic. And and you point to it quite rightly. When I um when I was growing up, uh, I mean I went through the phase when I was about five or six of wanting to be a pilot and, you know, probably a fireman and a policeman and God knows all the other 
all the other career choices that little kids think they want to make. But by the time I'd hit my teens, there was something I was very passionate about, and that was cooking. And I was determined to be a chef, and I can be a stubborn bastard. And I kept pushing and pushing and pushing to the extent where when uh, year 10, we had the chance to do work experience, I um, opted to do work experience in a commercial kitchen. And it was then, and only then, that it became clearly evident there was no way I was going to be able to do this because, you know, things at home are big enough. But when you look at a commercial kitchen, they are twice the size. Your range hoods, your, your pots, pans, uh, the benches, and all of that. And the... Helen is also a very passionate cook and a very, very good cook. And in one of her previous incarnations in this life, she was um, studying to be a pastry chef. And unfortunately, uh, the place where she was indentured went out of business, so she couldn't continue with it. But um, her love for cooking continued. So for her um, one of her significant birthdays, yeah, I gave her a beautiful set of Japanese um, uh, kitchen knives. Uh, Tajiro is the brand, which is um, – she chose them and – uh, they were a present. And Tajiro is used by Heston Blumenthal. Um, they are the knife of his, you know, they are the knife of his choice. Um, and they're a gorgeous set of knives. And uh, they played a very important part, uh, important part in the story as well, as you're aware, Gaz, and thanks for not giving part of it. But, um, yeah, ironic on, on so many fronts, considering the, uh, the important part that cooking was going to play in my life, had I achieved being a chef, we wouldn't be talking now. Uh, the important part that those knives played in um, in my life later on. And, uh, yeah, now here we are voicing MasterChef. And I'm not going to be a spoiler because the knives do play a significant part in your whole journey towards the end of the book. So I'm going to suggest people get the book and I'll leave that for them to find out because it is very significant. One thing I'm curious about, just to wrap this up, because I'm conscious of, of, of your time, Lofty, is that we started the show – in the same place that you started the book around talking about the relationship and your upbringing with your dad. And towards mm-hmm. the end of the book, you talk about the fact that when your dad died, the last words you spoke to him were, I love you, dad. It's okay. Mm. What, what was okay? What was okay uh, for me was that I'd had the opportunity in the funeral parlor to sit down and just talk to him and basically shoot the shit and say, you know, I'm not happy about this. I'm not happy about that. Wasn't fair the way you did this. Wasn't fair the way you did that. But hey, look, it's okay. There's no need to take this with you. You know, we're at peace now. We're, we're sort of, we're reckoned. It was, it's okay was my way of saying to him, we're reconciled. Despite all the shit that you and I went through, we're reconciled. It's okay. Go in peace. You know, don't take this with you, basically. There's a really profound moment towards the end of the book Lofty, where your best mate's Nick, his wife dies, mm. and you had a beautiful, profound moment with Ali, and then you left the room and you said you dropped uncontrollably to your knees in tears. Did did the passing of Ali kind of give you perspective on Lofty's life? Was that a moment that helped you course correct where you went, man, you know, was that a significant moment that that helped you on 2.0? I that is I've never actually thought about it, Gary, because there's been so many significant moments that have outlined in the book. But yes, and I I think it is uh, incredibly significant. Hence why it's also in the book. But Ali was um, was just one of the most beautiful people that you could ever wish to meet. And she and Nick were the were the dream team. They were the dream couple. They were the couple I looked at and went, one day I want to find that. 
And thankfully, I, I have with Helen. And what, um, what I think that gave me the realisation, Gary, is that life isn't always fair. It's just uh, sometimes you've got to deal with the hand that you've got to just go with the hand that you dealt with. You can't just always toss in the cards and go, give me a new hand. And here are two people, Nick and Ali, who are profoundly are religious, have a very strong Christian belief, and to watch them go through this with like, wow, the utmost faith knowing or in, in their faith that Ali was going to end up in heaven. But for me, it was like, this is so unfair. She is leaving behind a beautiful family, three young boys who were like, I think, six, eight, and pro- or maybe not even, not even six. I'm not exactly sure how old uh, Alexander was at the time, but Benji was eight. It was his eighth birthday when his mother um, passed away, and Sam, a couple of years older than that, might have been 11. And so three beautiful young boys who are going to be deprived of their mother, and it's like sometimes it just sucks. It's just so unfair. You know, there are there are plenty of bastards in the world that we could name that, hey, look, if you're going to be struck down by anything or anyone's going to be struck down, how about you choose them, 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 and them? Ali is not on that list. She should never have been on the list. And I just couldn't can't really reconcile with how unfair that was. It was just it was just dreadful. You've had a lot of people from kids to adults who've been in those terms quite brutal to you with how they not just with the words they said, but how they acted towards you, Lofty. And I'm just, if we flip that around, tell me an instance where you've been totally humbled by someone's genuine empathy to you. Oh, wow. Um, Oh, gosh. It actually happened. There's been a number of occasions, but um, I suppose the most uh, empathetic moment, if that's the correct word, is... um, when, as we called Stan in the book, I had suffered from three and a half years of intense bullying in my high school years, starting from uh, the very early days of year seven. And Stan was, pardon me, undoubtedly the toughest kid in the school, in our year anyway, and um, nobody knew how tough he was because they weren't prepared to find out. Um, And he could see what was going on. And um, ironically... um, his sister had moved into a, um, a flat over the road from where I lived and I looked out the window one Saturday morning and I thought, I know him and Stan and I had never had any issues with one another and I just happened to wander across the road and say, hey, do you want to hand unload the trailer? And the family accepted and within that hour or so, Stan and I got to know each other better and I thought, well, I'm going to see him at school on Monday but, you know, being the kid that he is and a bit of a loner and also the toughest kid in the school, one of the toughest, um... I, how he's going to react towards me is anybody's guess. So I was just so incredibly shocked when he came up to me and said, um, so-and-so teases you, doesn't he? And I said, yeah. And I said, said well, next time he does, tell me, because I don't like him. I'm going to have him. I said, well, I'll talk to you tomorrow because you can set your watch by it. It's going to happen. And indeed it did. Um, and the next day I sort of gingerly wandered up to Stan and said, hey, Stan, it happened again. And he said, Ian, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And um, I didn't see this happen, and I can only relate the story as as Stan told me, but I know it happened because, guys, I was being teased relentlessly every single day. You know, like 
it was just thankfully I was never physically bullied because the bullies themselves were gutless because there was the chance that you know they get caught physically bullying somebody they end up with the cane or the cuts or or the strap or or whatever it was we called it at school back then um so no one was willing to push it that far and um Stan came up to me later and said don't worry I've taken care of it and I said oh what happened he said oh Bob the bully as we've called him in the book and his um and his cohorts Bob one two three and four strolling down the corridor, you know, cock of the walk, basically, and uh, Stan came the other way by himself, grabbed Bob the bully number one, slammed him up against the locker and said, you've been teasing my friend Ian Fulton. And Bob the bully number one just packed his dax and turned to Jelly and went, no, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't, looking to his mates for support, but there wasn't any. No one was going to take this kid on. It was a bit like, mm, gee, Bob, I'd love to help you, but I think I hear the teacher calling or, come on, let's get Stan, you know, let's help Bob. Okay, you go first. No way, man. My teeth. My parents have paid good money for these teeth. I can't afford to get them knocked out. And Bob just held true and just said, you have. I know it. And next time you do it, I'm going to have you. And, guys, I cannot tell you a difference that made for the last six months of my year 10 because it allowed me to gather up what was left of my sanity. I never heard the name I got called again. And I, I won't say what it is now. People can read it in the book. But um, I never got called that name ever again. So as I say, I know it even though I didn't see it happen because you, you just don't go from constant, constant bullying to complete and utter radio silence without something absolutely rocking the core of their existence. Our show is about amazing guests like yourself, Lofty. It's also a little rock and a little country. And I know that if we talk rock, if if not one of the favourite band in your mind is also Robbo's favourite band, uh, U2. Oh, my God, yes. If there was a U2 song that we would play on the show that speaks to Ian Lofty Fulton as a soundtrack, what song would you choose? Um, there's a couple for Lofty 1.0 would have been, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Oh, God. Um, and I think probably one. We're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other, carry each other. Whoa. One is just one of those, there's so many songs, as you know, Robbo, that we can choose from. Um, well, yeah, it depends whether it was before or after survey party. If it's after <laughs> survey party, it would be numb, yeah. wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. It would be numb. Or lemon, as in slice lemon. lemon. <laughs> <laughs> that was during the party. That's during the party. That's right. Yeah, mysterious ways. I don't know. Uh, There's so many of them, but the one that always, like uh, the Joshua Tree, was the um, was still my favourite album. Um, and but there's oh god there's there's so many of them that come to mind but I still haven't found what I'm looking for would have been the early part of my life. Lofty, I know you've said on many occasions that people walk up to you in the grocery store or at the fish and chip shop when they hear your voice and say, aren't you the voice of Rocktober on the Mojo radio show? That's 
<laughs> that- as I cannot tell you how many times that has happened. <laughs> yeah. I can't tell you. Ma- MasterChef Australia, God knows how many radio stations, how many television stations, but everyone goes, oh, yeah, Mojo oh, Radio yeah. Show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll be on your gravestone, right, Lofty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And Voice of the Mojo Radio Show. And yeah. I want to tie it back to Rocktober just to close us out of this little charade, Lofty, that you said in the mm-hmm. book people fall into two categories, those who are shocked by your appearance and those who see you for who you really are. And I just want to say to you, mate, and I'll let, I'm going to hand to Robbo in a second, but we see you and... You are one of the greats of the industry. We've known you for, gee, 20, 25 years. You're a caring, supportive guy. You've been through some shit, but, mate, it's just made you stronger. It's made you better. You're a good guy. I know you've done some charity work for me and around me. And um, on behalf of us here in the show, and I'll throw it to Robbo, um, but you're a good bloke, <sighs> mate, and the book is the book's a terrific, terrific story. And um, I, I wish you and Helen all the best, mate. Gaz, thank you. I so appreciate you saying that. I really do, man. I um, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll wrap this interview up though, Gaz, just by saying you've nailed Lofty's personal life one hundred percent in that interview. But I've got to say, from a professional point of view, and you know, having as I said earlier, knowing Lofty since '92, mate, there's not many voices in in this land now that you can throw a script at and just know that you're not going to have to worry about it. It's going to be a 30-second job to get it done and you're not going to have to muck around and, you know, interpretation, voice, tone, the whole lot, it just happens and bang. Mate, and it's no wonder that you're at the top of your game, mate. No surprise at all. Uh, guys, thank you. That is that is very kind. And um, the beauty of now being Lofty 2.0 is um, I'm, I've always loved doing voiceovers, always, which is why I got into it, obviously, even though the script was uh, the imposter syndrome was running a lot of my life, but now Lofty 2.0, I just enjoy what I do. And, you know, as they say, if you do, you'll never, you'll never work a day in your life. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you guys too, apart from just introing you every other day. <laughs> <laughs> this is a test of the Mojo Broadcast System, the Mojo Radio Show. So as always, we need a remarkable fact, Robbo's Remarkable Fact. Uh, what have you got for us today? Robbo's Remarkable Fact. It's about time. Let's go. Considering we had Lofty Fulton, Mr. MasterChef, on the show today, I've actually come up with the Robbo's Remarkable Recipe. This would be, this, this be a good piece of radio. <laughs> <laughs> no, these. I've got to tell you, I tried these firsthand on the weekend. We had the, um, we actually had the state championships for the boys on the weekend for their football, and I took some of these down. They're healthy lemon coconut energy balls, and they are so good and they're so healthy. I- I'll give Gary the link to put up in the show notes. So if you want to go for it, the details will be there. But basically, it's 150 grams of cashews, 175 grams of dates, 45 grams of unsweetened shredded coconut. 40 grams of chia seeds, the zest from one lemon and one and a half tablespoons of lemon juice. Pretty much you stick them in the food presser, whiz them up, roll them in some more coconut and eat them. And they are so good and so good for you as well. So there you go. There's Robbo's Remarkable Recipe. Is this is this is one here, right? Mm. Why do you have it smeared on top of a Tim Tam? 
<laughs> well, you've got to—it's my birthday. You've got to be a little bit indulgent, right? <laughs> no, this is the this is the typical. I can imagine you being a MasterChef. Now, what I've done here is I wanted to get some <laughs> texture. I wanted I want the flavours to really pop. So what I had is I had the Tim Tam on there to reduce the acidity because I really need to get some mouthfeel to it. Need some sugar. Oh, That's right. God, they're yeah. so rehearsed. These it's clowns, a, honestly. It's a it's a textural thing. We interrupt this program to bring you a special. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. Now, you did mention that it is your, what, 60? How old are you today? 61? <laughs> 50. 50th. Today's my 50th. Are you 50? Yes, it is. Oh, well, Lola, can you play Altered Images Happy Birthday for me, please? <laughs> And that takes me back. It uh, does. Happy birthday, mate. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm, I think my parents are actually surprised I made it this far, and maybe so am I, but, you know. And to celebrate, we have got you a brand-new unopened packet of Tim Tams. With so. my name on them as well, I see, so no one else pinches there them. There you go, mate. It's all yours. <laughs> Woohoo! Ordering Tim Tams. See? Whoa. My girl's got my back. Got a code. We, have a, we have a coding issue. We have a, we have a code red. <laughs> Quick, Thank someone you, call Cole's home delivery. <laughs> oh, that's very master. You follow our friends at Cole's. That's right. Exactly. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, before we wrap up the show, mm. I have got a remarkable fact. This is so cool. Yeah. John Rambo, that is... Sylvester Stallone, big fan of the show. Hello, Sly. He uh, wish he'd stop writing to us, though. He's clogging up my inbox. And he isn't ready to hit the old rocking chair yet. He's back. And I don't know if you've seen it yet, but the latest trailer for Rambo Last Blood. Have you seen oh, this yet? what? <laughs> oh, no, no. This is no. super cool. The story goes that he has basically dropped out of society and he's living on a, as a, like a cowboy, riding horses and doing the cowboy, right. cowboying up yeah. in Arizona. Right. So, and, and he, here's a clip from the film. It's amazing. I've lived in a world of death. I've watched people I've loved die. Some fast with a bullet. Some not enough left to bury. These years I've kept my secrets. But the time has come to face my past. And if it comes looking for me, they will welcome death. I want revenge. Nothing they can do to stop it. I thought you were going to say he's like 
hunting someone around the retirement village or something. So Rambo Last Blood is scheduled for September 20 worldwide release. I will be lining up for that one. If it can get out of the rocking chair first. <laughs> and what's really cool is they've got a remix of, I haven't heard of this artist, Lil Nas X. Yes. And Billy Ray Cyrus yep. doing Old Country Road. Mate, you're obviously not listening to your top 10 radio. It's all over the place. It's just, that track? it's everywhere. Yeah, it's in the charts and everything. Come on, get with the times, Mr. Burt Whistle. Is it really? It or is. Or are you indeed. taking the piss? No, it's huge. It's a huge hit. I've been making IDs and stuff for it for stations all over the world in the last few weeks. So, yeah, it's massive. It's old Country Road. Old Country Road. Indeed yeah, it is. I'm going to take my horse through the old town road. I'm going to ride till I can't no more. I'm going to take my horse through the old town road. I'm going to ride. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached, head is mighty black, got the bushes black and mad. All right, so that was my remarkable fact. Uh, something else now, two things. Before we finish up, we have got a page on Patreon. It's gone really well. We've already hit our first target, so this week we're putting on our second target, what it means. But Adam, Debbie, Jackie, Jeremy, or just a few of the people, Steve, uh, Tom, Wade, we've had a really amazing response to it. We've hit our target, which means we can do some new stuff in the studio and help get our get the word out about the Mojo Radio Show, which is going still on the charts, which is really good. It's been a, a great success. Now, what this all means is Patreon is a place where if you like what we're doing, and you'd like to support us, and we have had six seasons with no advertising, no sponsors, this is just your chance to say, well done, guys, like what you're doing to keep all that stuff off. And in return, we have done a special show. So can you, Robbo, play the excellent promo for anyone who supported us on Patreon? You'll see the details on the page, the links in the show notes. You will receive, it's going to run up two hours, the show? Uh, and then some. <laughs> Two hours and there's some. It is a. It won't be released. It's not a podcast. It's a special one-off show that you can download to whatever device you want. It's yours to keep. But it's a two-hour-plus show. It's called Explosive Hits 2019. It's our favourite bits, the bits that have resonated the most with us and you, the listeners, plus a bit of fun music and banter uh, and stuff from the In the, the words team. of Katel, plus a few surprises. Lola, can you play our little taster, please? Playing that now. The Mojo Radio Show has been keeping this under lock and key. Explosive Hits 2019. It's a priceless collection of mojo changing hits with Noel Razor Smith. Can you use the things you learn in the criminal life in the straight line? I ain't Amy Moran. You have something like 65,000 to 70,000 thoughts a day. A lot of them are going to be negative. A lot of them are filled with self-doubt. Explosive Hits 2019. 22 glittering stars with Tate Fletcher. Stop lying to yourself. That's what I would say first of all. You've got to stop lying. Ivor Davies, Maria Gronberg, Simon Marshall, and classic Karek Ashley. Because most people, they're living their life like there's no ramification to it. Think of the worst case scenario, and you go, that's it, I'm done. Don't stop believing. 
Explosive Hits 2019 with Dave Acosta. Now you're recognizing that being more aware is actually rewarding in a good way to you. Explosive Hits 2019. It's a pure gold collection. A bucket load of our greatest hits. And it's waiting for you on the Mojo Radio Show Patreon page. Out now from KTEL. Mate, that is a great piece of production. I did, that was so much fun to put together. I, I had to zone myself back to the, to the 70s when I was starting to get interested in radio and think about how the announcers sounded and how KTEL used to do their TV commercials and that sort of stuff. That was so much fun. And Lofty and I had so many laughs putting it together. Some of those music tracks, I've got to say, bring back some <laughs> good and some horrible memories. But I've got to say, I, I, I think I've said it before in the show, but going through this and recounting some of the guests we had. And because we're doing a show a week and we have done for six seasons, you tend to forget some of the gold that can be 18 yeah. months or two years old. The beauty of podcasts yeah. is you never lose them. But my goodness, I went back there and there was just some absolute crackers that although they're in my journal, had left my conscious mind. And going back and listening, because I listened to probably 20 hours of shows over the last month or so, man, there was some good stuff. We put the best of the best of this. It's a lot of fun. It's a beautifully produced show. It's yours to keep. If you're interested in explosive hits, the guys I mentioned, you know, Adams and Wades and Thomas, you're going to get it and you'll be getting that this week. But the other guys, if you haven't signed up to Patreon, it's a way cool platform. It's for just for creatives. Check it out. Explosive Hits will be yours. And then in addition to that, we'll be doing a monthly show just for Patreon subscribers. And this is something we'll send out every month. It's called the Backstage Pass. It's stuff you won't hear online, but it's us in the studio with the whole team just doing other stuff, plus highlights, book reviews, podcast reviews. It'll be a cracker. So that's what we're doing on Patreon. New rewards to come, but uh, it's worth getting on board. Do you know I was starting to work on the Backstage Pass stuff last week, was recording some voice tracks with Lofty and AP and stuff, and it made me realise the synergy because we're talking about the um, explosive hits of 2019 back to the 70s. Do you remember a little river band album called Backstage Pass, which, which was them live on stage? Did, did, oh, do you note the synergy? No. How well we've done. Have you heard about the lonesome loser beaten by the queen of hearts every time? The Mojo Radio Show. To take us out this week... This is an observation of a trend that's happening. Now, this is a cut from an album you'll find on Spotify by a producer called Akira, A-K-I-R-A. This is one of my favourite podcast hosts and the guy, our last week's guest was JP Donnell, who's the elite sniper who now works for Echelon Front. He works with Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, who were commanders in Ramadi for the Navy SEALs. He works in Echelon Front. Jocko Willink did a track on his podcast, which has now been taken and laid over a piece of music by Akira. So I thought you might be interested in this, mate, because sounds good. this is a trend where people are taking great content, they're making it into more than just a podcast, but more an entertainment piece. So they've taken a great piece from the podcast. They've sequenced it and they've done a bit of dubbing with it, put it over music to make it into a music track. And I play it quite often when I'm out 
doing stuff in the field like working out or I'm in the gym. And it's just a great piece of background music with a message to it. So the reason I bring it up is Arnold's just done one. Oh. So Arnold Schwarzenegger, big mm. fan of the show, Arnie. Arnie. The mojo nader. So if you go on to online, you'll see Arnold in a studio voicing a track that sits over a produced music track. So I think you're going to see more of this. You go back to your alter ego of Ivor Davies and experimenting with what's the next thing, what hasn't been done before, taking valuable content, putting it over music into a soundtrack that gives you the best of both worlds of entertainment and value that you can work out to or drive to or work to. And you're seeing people like Jordan Peterson has done a fantastic one. He's 42 Laws to Live By that Akira has done. David Goggins has done one called Stealing Souls that Akira has done. They're really, really good. I think we're going to see more of it. Nice. Well, listen, if we end up doing one, just one thing, please don't sing. Yeah, no, singing's not part of it. It's all talking. It's all, <laughs> okay. all talking. Oh, okay. Well, this is a track from Akira. It's from the playlist on Spotify called This Is Akira, The Don, D-O-N. And this is one of the tracks from Jocko Willink from the Jocko podcast who did a piece, I don't know what do you call it, being dubbed or looped or whatever, yep. the key message Dub. over a piece of music. Um, so this is Jocko, this is Akira, and this is Us Done, We're Out. Another protein ball. <laughs> that you won't find it the shortcut is a lie the hack doesn't get you there if you want to take the easy road it won't take you to where you want to be stronger smarter faster healthier better
core principle that overcomes laziness and lethargy and excuses. Excuses. Discipline defeats the infinite excuses that say, not today, not now, I need a rest, I'll do it tomorrow. Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see GaryBurtWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>